Welcome to Serial City. A podcast of stories, serialized and self-contained. On each show we welcome guests to complement our day's selection. A discussion of breakfast cereal turns up in each show. Serial City is produced by the Midwest-centric publishing imprint Maintenance Ends. Welcome. Here is Todd Kim. Welcome to the fifth episode of Serial City. Our main story is titled Send in the Clown by yours truly. We split our main story into two parts. In between, author and publisher Rick Harsh returns with more of his extemporaneous serial, The Smiley Face Killers. Following that, we have a field recording titled Towboat Passing, Riverbank, Shawnee, Louisville, Kentucky, 2013, August 28th, by Aaron Rosenblum. This field recording is part of the project Kentucky Sounds and was made on the riverbank of the Ohio River. It features waves, a passing towboat, cicadas, and industrial background noise. The year was 1979. I was a senior in broadcasting at the University of Iowa and I needed to look for a TV internship to fulfill my BA requirements. Back then there were two choices, KCRG Channel 9 and WMT Channel 2. Now if you grew up in eastern Iowa between 1961 and 1982, you grew up watching the Dr. Max show. What kind of doctor was he? Nobody knew. He just materialized every weekday afternoon at 4 o'clock, showing cartoons, doling out safety advice, and sparring with a gentle but confused clown by the name of Mambo. Guess which one I chose. Max, that was his real name, was a guy's guy. We talked lots of sports, got into a little trouble after work. I never approached anything close to a second sidekick, but did listen sympathetically to his troubles, calculate his tips, and brought around the car. We had just made it through another week of fly by the seat of your Slacks live TV when Max strolled up, asking could I put in a little overtime that weekend. He said he would make it worth my while in that bad Edward G. Robinson voice of his. I was pretty exhausted after my first crack at camera two that week. Following the action with that beast was like shunting a Volkswagen Beetle around the studio floor. So I begged off, offering some excuse. Max seemed a little bit put off, but took negatory for an answer. That's when Fred walked up in full clown makeup. Now Fred Petrick was probably the sweetest, most genial man I had ever met in my 25 years of television. While the rest of us are thinking of another place we'd rather be, Fred was always in the moment, giving it his all. Hey, you managed to talk the kid into doing this birthday with us, he asked as he walked up. Birthday, I blurted. Here I thought you were going to have me sorting cables all weekend and you were inviting me to a party? Yeah, said Fred, it's usually just me and the balloon animals, but this kid's parents are calling in a calvary. What's Laurel without his hearty, said Max. Little kids make crappy straight men. He let a beat slide by. But even worse, punching bags. We laughed. 
Max was pretty clever, but unbedoubts to our sizable Eastern Iowa demographic at his best when he could go a little dark. But why do you need me, I asked. Max walked over to his prop bin and pulled out what looked like an oversized Star Trek phaser. It took me a while to recognize it as a Super 8 camera that keyed at mid-century family guy's inner John Ford. They want a movie of it, Max said. Why not hire out the whole Channel 2 news crew, I said. Is this party in Wellington Heights or what? Maybe the Sinclair family? I said that because that was the rich part of town. Whoever had ordered up this party had to be paying a pretty penny. Max laughed, no. It's clear out in Benton County, on a farm. Fred's features crumbled into a sad cowpoke face as he pantomimed a lasso swinging in the air over Max's head. This man was a genius. All right, I said, when do we head out? I expected a late morning departure. Maybe we'd grab a cheese Frenchie over at the West Side Kings before blowing town. Noon, I asked. No, said Max wiping blindly at the invisible noose as if the cameras were still rolling. Show up here at 9 p.m. We go on at 10. Oh, I said, calculating how a kid who had watched the show in its early days could possibly be old enough to have Dr. Max and Mambo make an ironic appearance at a late-night kager out in the middle of nowhere. It was possible, but I didn't have a good feeling about it. Somebody get references, I asked. Fred did, said Max, pretending to be reeled in by his imaginary rope. I didn't think Fred's background checks would be very thorough. Max put his hand on my shoulder. Say, my car's in the shop, he said. Any way we could avail ourselves of that AMC gremlin of yours? Free tank of gas in it for you. Sure, I said. Those were the days before companies paid mileage especially locally owned television stations. That gremlin was on its last legs and as it turned out wouldn't even run out that promised tank of gas before getting sent to the scrapyard. I didn't go out that night instinctively preparing for what might lay ahead with a full night's sleep and plenty of hydration. I pulled up in front of the station at 9 p.m. sharp that next night. The boys were nowhere to be seen so I waited in my car blasting out toys in the attic over the factory cassette. Fred meandered into the parking lot 15 minutes late in a gold Chrysler LeBaron driven by his little sister, Janice. I know it's hard to believe, but I never saw Fred out of his clown makeup. I didn't go to the Christmas parties. He skipped the staff meetings. They said he liked to apply it himself at home. Hey, Ralph, he said as he balanced his box of party favors on my roof. Track three, Adam's apple had kicked in, and Fred started to swish his chin and tail. Then he started to waddle and strut in time to those chunky riffs. Back when Kane was able, he warbled in a kind of screech, leaning forward and then cantering back in the exaggerated shamble of a Tibetan yak. I laughed, beating the steering wheel with the bottom of my fists. I had grown up watching Mambo, and the little kid in me never failed to respond when the jester of my golden years appeared out of nowhere. And nothing made him happier either. Our moment was cut short by the cab careening into the lot and zipping up beside us. 
Max had paid and tipped the driver, taking a mock swing at Fred and jumped in beside me yelling shotgun before anybody knew what had happened. Hey, let me in, Fred whined, jiggling Max's headrest through the passenger window. Max slapped Fred's hand and attempted to close the door on those flopping clown hands. Get some rope, Ralph yelled. We'll drag him behind us. Fred managed to jimmy open the hatchback and crawl into the back seat. We reached the edge of town with no words exchanged. A cheese Frenchie was not in the cards. The countryside was ominous in the falling dark, the sense of foreboding relieved periodically by the lamped streets of small towns. Lots of my kids live out in these places, said Max, referring to his viewers. This party, though, said Fred, with the oversized white gloves perched on the back of Max's seat like morning doves. It's not in one of these towns, is it? Nope, said Max. The quality and width of the road dwindled with his answer. Potholes, said Fred, as I swerved to miss the first. Captain Obvious, slurred Max. Was he drunk? The rumors never ended. Maybe his car wasn't actually in the shop. Just trying to help the kid out, came Mambo's wounded contralto. I appreciate it, Fred, I called back. Pretty sure that last one would have swallowed us up all. Left, here, said Max, sharp, squinting at the red diode of his watch. The order was late, and our hard turn sent us all careening. We were on a gravel road. It had been a while. Rocks pecked the undercarriage, taking me back. We fishtailed as I shot the sweet spot of a crest in the cratered road. I had grown up on this plain surface. I knew how to nurse and goose a Detroit death trap, keep it somewhere between flying and crashing, like a plastic puck on one of those air hockey games. Ooh-ha, proclaimed Fred. Hold on to your hats, called Max. Now the only person in the car in possession of a hat was Fred, a white beret that somehow never got him confused for a French clown. I looked back and saw he was indeed holding on to it. The mass of red paint circling his mouth made that part of his face resemble the business end of a bathroom plunger. And now that orifice was a black blank of fear. I don't think Fred had ever been outside the city limits of Cedar Rapids, to tell you the truth. Right here, said Max. Right where, asked Fred, not missing a beat. They had the whole who's on first routine worked out between them. When they dared it live ten years before, it was the only time in the show's history they got hate mail, a few boxes, so they never tried it again. This right turn was only a little less extreme than the last one, and set us on a collision course with a tractor and a fully loaded corn wagon. Farmers were in their fields late that time of year. I braked and swerved, clipping the wagon's slow-moving vehicle reflector as we roared by on a mushy shoulder that almost pulled us into the ditch. Fred had rolled his window down and was waving his tam. I am invincible, he shouted. That mouth a gruesome maw of joy. Clown joy. It's but ugly. The moment brought back the night of my high school graduation when I took off with the boys on an all-night cruise over the country road surrounded our small town. One of the boys was a former classmate who had moved to Missouri the year before. 
He said he couldn't remember having so much fun and invited us down to visit him soon for more of the same. The plans and preparations went on for weeks. The build-up was huge with the reports on departure time and flux. With the day and time finally assigned, I waited on the front porch with a ridiculous garment bag flopped over my knee. I waited two hours past my pickup time and finally gave up and ate the leftover goulash on the stove and went to bed early. The next night, they called me, sheepish and awkward, from Missouri. Was I mad, they wondered? Was I? Fred had calmed down and Max had somehow indicated the need for a final rite. We were sitting in a farmhouse yard, a smaller farmhouse by farmhouse standards in that part of the country, and pitch dark inside. Doesn't look like anybody's home, remarked Fred, opening the door and rolling out in his floppy clown shoes. He did an exaggerated backward stretch to the starry skies, and Max opened his door. I've got a bad feeling about this, he said. Was it a surprise party, I asked. It wasn't booked as one, but who knows, Max said. He slapped his thighs and launched himself toward the house. Fred handed me the camera. I followed Fred. I suppose it was also possible we had somehow reached the wrong address, but this had not occurred to any of us. Here's Rick. This this is something that uh, I believe if you you look up in in news archives and so on, uh, you can find uh, stories about the smiley face killings in Pittsburgh, I think, um, in uh, a couple of places in the Northeast. I'm not sure where, but maybe New York State and uh, maybe New maybe Boston. But uh, then there are those who, who believe that this is a virtually nationwide phenomenon, although I, I don't think I've seen anything go to California. I suppose they have their own, you know, serial killer types there. Um, and if you're uh, someone who's, you know, itching for a, a serial killer in, in, uh, in the Midwest, you want your own stamp on it, which means the smiley face killer um, can be, I suppose, a sort of a mocking um, thing. I, I, it's not meant that way, but I suppose if you're from California where you, you get real, or Washington State, where you get real serial killers, you know, getting people in their cars and, you know, shit like that. I think Bundy was from one of those places. And you get plenty of real serial killers, you know, probably you find the, you know, the, 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 the smiley face killer, you know, a bit, you know, Bush League, Bush League. But of course, then you have the aspect of the evil clown, which is um, from the deepest of our fears um, and, and will live forever. So, um, you know, the world upside down which um, I think has gathers its force from the opposite of carnival. Carnival is turning the world upside down to mock the powerful. Um, but what makes the, the evil clown such a powerful uh, uh, symbol of, of 
to be to fear uh, it's like the 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 supremacy of of the nightmare and fear is 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 the simple fact that you can have everything and uh then what what turns out to be simple entertainment is is you know in in eradicable evil let's say so anyway the 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 the, the smiley faces okay there are in fact cases of dead bodies that have been found in places in water near where there were trees with smiley faces carved into them um, i believe the one in pittsburgh had a smiley face on a bridge nine miles down river or something that that made me laugh when i was watching a um, documentary on it and uh um so you know it, it goes both ways it's, sometimes it's it's you know like a, a spooky thing you know you find the body you start looking around and sure enough there's the smiley face i guess in the pittsburgh case you uh, expand the perimeter until you find a smiley face and then i guess you start thinking is pittsburgh really such a miserable city that you have to go nine miles down the river to find one smiley face well uh the the reason to go into this of course is um to determine whether actually there is actually a connection between smiley faces and dead bodies one question you might want to ask is um if you find let's say let's keep it to lacrosse if you find 10 dead bodies how many smiley faces have you found and even this becomes somewhat of a, a, a controversial thing because you're not going to find a one-to-one -one correlation. But um, even if you find five of them, that's enough to say, ah, yeah, yeah, five accidents, five murders. But the 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 monkey wrench in the snafu here is that you will also find nine smiley faces and one body <laughs> so what does the smiley face mean well we will call these the smiley face killers killings because that's what they're called um that does not mean that our conclusion will be that the lacrosse police and uh um the reporting on on the crimes from the in the newspaper is all all bullshit um they determine that they are mostly accidents and uh, or all accidents and they are absolutely right almost and if it weren't for that almost i guess it wouldn't even be worth telling the story we would just you know wrap up uh, the whole thing with, with one five minute report uh, but the, there are that's this is one aspect the other aspect of it um uh, this is kind of my pause to reflect chapter is what are the theories other than that they're accidents well they're murders so how is it done how do you um you know how and how do you account for one case where um there were just one set of footsteps well in that one i guess you have to work a little harder um you know 
uh, how did they lure? Maybe they led him by uh, a rope from two sides and cleaned up their, you know, brushed up their tracks or, you know, or that was a one-off uh, accident. And the rest of them, because if you're going to, if it's going to be a smiley face killer, they aren't going to do it in Riverside Park because, uh, well, there are trees, but they're, they're not as thick as most of the places where they figure the bodies went in, um, I suppose. But um, how, who is doing this and why? Well, one of the most prominent theories is that, well, the most prominent theory, and I guess the, the only one that resonates with me, because there's, you, you know, it has to be one or two or three or whatever, the same people in each case, and it's hard to put together a team that does this. It's hard to, it's hard to um, imagine, let's say you got one guy, a bad guy, a murderer. How does he do this? He has to separate a man. In each case, it seems that it's a man separated from a group, and they just kind of lost him, and they were all drunk, and that easily happens. But how does the man get another grown man? These are all young men, young college-aged men, usually physically fit I don't know how true that is, but the good-looking fit, fraternity type. So you've got the outsider, um, and uh, that. how does he get them by himself the spacious couple of blocks to the river? Um, and maybe that's why it only happens once a year. Maybe many times he's tried to lure some drunk and failed. But that's that's... One theory. The other theory is the feminist theory, and it's not really the feminist theory, but it's um, uh, been called that. And that's that a um, uh, a woman does it, and she lures them out of you know disgust and hatred for their you know uh, entire mo you know they're out at night to get laid and they're you know they're 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 they you know women are objects etc and uh but here we have one who lures them and now that is easy to believe that a woman could easily lure a drunken man you know uh i know it's not the same but you you have to think of cask of amontillado you know and, uh, you know, how the drunken man is lured. But we're not talking about uh, luring someone to a wall, uh, clamp them to, and then brick them in. Um, in this case, how does the woman get them in the river? Um, I don't think it's actually so so odd. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it would be so difficult. Um, you know, maybe, again, just like in... in with our other theory, the uh, um, it's not always possible and doesn't always happen, and it's forgotten or it's never reported. But once a year, you know, get them to the right place, and uh, yeah, get them off balance, push them in, and uh, pick up a stick and and you know just keep them away. Although nobody, none of the bodies. 
that we know of had, had, had the marks, or stick marks on them or anything like that. And then there's the third, and it's a, a variation on the folia do. Um, it's the woman who is the victim and the brains behind it, a woman who has suffered, perhaps been raped. She has uh, a man helping her. And she lures the man, the victim, away from everybody else. And then somewhere down between 2nd Street and the river, when no one's able to see, uh, her partner, a man, easily overcomes the person. And um, next thing you know, there's another body in the river. These are the three theories. We know um, from almost all reporting that's been done that these cases are generally probably not um, murders. And so this probably isn't happening. But it's never 100% certain, not even in the case where the, the tracks say the person walked right into the river. Um, you can never know 100% unless you see it, and nobody's seen any of these. And so that leaves just enough room for um, speculation to breathe. And, and this is basically what this story is all about, is the breath of speculation.
Send in the Clown, Part 2. Some outcomes are so inexorable they unfold with a type of methodical lunacy, usually felt in the stomach or at the corners of the mouth. It is a type of tremble. Most of these heartbreaks, calamities, and misfortunes are not attended by that very emblem of bedlam, a clown. Ours was nearly led by one. The porch smelled freshly painted, yet sparrows had built nests in its upper reaches. Of the two windows on either side of the front door, the left was open on a screen. The paint job was dark. It looked black, but it had to be dark brown. Who paints their porch black? The screen had been painted too, same color, and some of the mesh was occluded by what must have been a rush paint job. Or so I perceived, as it turned out, incorrectly. The waft of cooked meat, probably a rump roast, met my nostrils, and my stomach leapt favorably like a dog at a leash. A cheese Frenchie would have made all the difference in the world. The fat and starch cells would have fed some sense to my brain. I would have recruited my accomplices to help me wreak revenge on those boys who left me high and dry those years before with a garment bag over my knee. I think they call it a killing spree. But no, I'm not that type. It never crossed my mind. So even if we had a ride with a bunch of knives or guns or even a single crowbar to take turns with, we would still have swept inexorably toward that house that night. Max opened the screen to knock on the door, standard him first lap at the porthole window. The raps rebounded from the barn behind us. Barns hold a certain romance for me, especially the weathered ramshackle ones. This barn was four square, freshly painted as the house. Somebody with a farm this immaculate wouldn't have done such a slapdash job on the screens, I remember thinking. Max tried again, louder. The echo seemed to come back to us from the hills, set around like barns made of earth. Fred, impatient and creeped out, shot out his hand, burying his pale, thin wrist at the flouncy ruffle to try the doorknob. It yielded with a soft click that seemed to issue from Max's jaw and swung open. Max whapped Fred with a rolled-up newspaper that could have only been up his sleeve. Now look what you've done, he snapped. It was unlocked, he said. I, I merely pushed it open. And he turned to me with a look I had never seen on his face. His right eyebrow flexed up and down, not comically. Can you feel it, Ralph? he asked. Yes, I said, and a chill rose up my back. Fred doffed his cap, 
bowed slightly and crossed the threshold. Max huffed and threw down his newspaper. We need to get out of here, he said. He grabbed the lapels of his sport jacket and shook himself, quivering to the jowls. It was classic Dr. Max, a gesture I hadn't realized belonged to the actual man until right then. Fred had disappeared inside the house. It's exactly like him to do something like this, said Max. I wasn't so sure. To me, it seemed out of character. Then I realized it was Mambo he was referring to. Should we go in, I asked. Something could happen to him in there. Max scowled and waved off the idea. I realized my next move might end up having repercussions. But I was truly worried about Fred. Max must have guessed my reasonings because he took a deep breath and making the classic away we go with his arms and head motion. He pitched himself through the open door. I stepped through myself, surprised at how dark it was inside. Fred, where are you? yelled Max. If it had been a few years later, the thought might have crossed my mind that we were being punked. Ashton Kutcher had even grown up a few miles down the road, though it was too young to have grown up with Max and Fred's show. Candid camera? But that had gone off the air decades ago. I could hear Max stumbling around in the dark, bumping furniture and slapping the walls. He was trying to find a light switch. Just a minute, Fred's voice came, muffled from somewhere below us. That clown is in the basement, crabbed Max. Was it pennies, dimes, or quarters you put in the fuse box? We heard Fred say. Max had found a light switch and was clicking it off and on with no result. Pennies, yelled Max. You got some? Now this is where we parted ways, the three of us. The next day, we were questioned separately by the Benton County Sheriff. Somehow, each of us came up with wildly different versions of what happened from that point forward. Up until we entered the house, our stories matched, almost to an unsettling degree. The clanging unisons of our accounts concerned Sheriff Popovich to such a degree, we later learned, he at first suspected us of collusion. Why the sudden and complete diversion among our stories once Fred jammed the pennies into his switch box and the lights blazed on? Well, even then our accounts concurred in one very big way. No Larry. Max told me his side of things over a basket of those famous TikTok onion rings one night. He said the light switched on and he compared it to being caught red-handed on the infield of the colonel's baseball field, something he said that really happened to him once. Those hundred candle lights scorching you to the backs of your eyeballs. Though I had never been caught like that, it felt like a good analogy. What did they catch you doing, I asked. Before the murder, Max and I had confessed all sorts of things to each other in various Cedar Rapids dives. He had quite a few years on me, but even fresh out of college, I had come a long way from my days as a St. Patrick's altar boy. Even at the time of our TikTok meeting, Larry's murder inquisition had sown all degree of distrust between people at the station. Max hesitated. I imagined a pitcher's mound tryst with a ginned up script girl. Three frosty mugs had loosened his reserve and common sense. 
He told me that while it did involve the pitcher's mound, the deed was nothing so unseemly as that. I was collecting a sample of dirt, he said cryptically, snagging the last ring off the plate. Strafford was on a home game streak, and they said if he ever found out that even one speck had been removed from that hump, his confidence would have been crushed. So you wanted to end Strafford's streak, I asked? No, I'm the oldest Colonel's fan, he said. What Strafford didn't know couldn't hurt him. The dirt was part of the ingredients for a spell. A spell, I asked? Scoop of the century, Dr. Max was a practicing warlock. This we'll figure later. For now, I have to focus on Max's version of the events from the night on the farm when the whole thing got started. The lights came on and sitting there in front of us, I guess here Max meant us to be him and me, though I had no memory of anything approaching it, were two guys on a couch. We were standing in the middle of a living room, or parlor, he continued, and here Max's brain zoned in on that earlier idea of it being a surprise party. Only it wasn't a surprise birthday party, it was a surprise Halloween party. He believed this for two reasons. One, the two guys on the couch were dressed in costumes, and two, there was a tub of water with apples floating in it at their feet. Max swears he sat down and had a conversation with these two people. The person he said he could tell was actually a woman was dressed up like a guy in overalls, was barefoot and wore a tin pot for a hat. The other, he said, was dressed as of all things a tree. You're the apple tree, Max had said. No, I'm a beanstalk, the kid said. And lounging back and crossing his ankles, he pointed at the tub and said, Those aren't my apples, sir. Fred's story takes place in the basement, of course, he told me hurriedly, with tears in his eyes, the day we learned the show was canceled, ending all three of our television careers with one fall of the axe. Max blamed everything that happened on that night at the farm, so Fred did to tell me in the short interval of time when Max was out of earshot in the bathroom, removing his makeup. At first I thought I heard him wrong. There was a pixie, he said. A pixie, I repeated. Yes, he said. She told me she needed help, that she'd been trapped down there for a very long time. That's all I got out of him before Max came ramming out of the john with a yen for martinis from R.G. Books, followed by two plates of spaghetti with double the meatballs. We're going to celebrate on me, he said. And turning to Fred, you coming, old man? Be a sport, why don't you, for once? Fred, if you haven't guessed it by now, was a toddling teetotaler as pure as the driven snow. I know people have issues with clowns these days. They find them creepy or worse. Clowns, they're just really sponges for everything sad or bad in the air. Fred only ever exuded a sort of slow kindness that occasionally emerged on the sad. Fred shook his head. You kids have fun. The rest of the night, we all sort of agreed on what happened. Benton County Sheriff's Department squad cars came pouring into the yard, cherries flashing. They frisked us against the barn and read us our rights. Max and Fred figured, I later understood based on their experience of what happened inside, that the cops were breaking up some kind of illicit party. What do you suppose it was, Max asked me there. He was pretending Fred didn't exist, thinking he'd gotten us into this mess. I eyed Fred standing on the other side of the county car, Max and my knees bumped against. For some reason, they always go easier on the clown. 
Drugs, maybe, I ventured. Yup, said Fax, I think so. But why were they so happy on us bringing a camera, wondered Max. You know, I think it could have been something else. Maybe they were making one of those stag films in there. That seemed like a leap to me at the time. I've only recently come to terms with what I saw inside, and the thing I remember most clearly was what happened next. The officers told us we could relax and back away from the car, so I lifted my hands and turned around to see Max looking back at the hood with uh, bugged eyes, his lips blubbering on a word that didn't make sense until I turned around and saw it. My own bloody handprints on the hood of that car. To be continued, it's not as bad as it sounds. Thank you for joining us for Serial City number 5. Music featured in this episode included, Sweet Summer Child by Govan, A Winter's Fairy Tale by Small Colin, Good Vibes by Jay Blanked, Jump, Oh Hi Mark by Mon Plaza, Motivational Beat by Dave Dipper, New Day by Alan Spiljack, Free Tone Textures by Small Colin, Butterfly in the Stomach by Chtif, Mara, Proton Beat by Ganji. Poisoned Kiss by Croanda, a chase post haste by people like us and a go fizzmiz. Join us next time for Serial City.